This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting. Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, April 1st, the potentially too provocative edition. I'm Jamila Lemieux, a writer, contributor to Slate's Karen Feeding Parenting column, and co-host of Slate's Wild and Wise chat show, and mom to Naima, who is officially, officially, officially eight years old, and we live in Los Angeles, California. I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. I write the homeschool and family travel blog, Dutch Dutch Goose. I'm the mom to three littles, Henry, who's eight, Oliver, who's six, and Teddy, who's four. And we live in Navarre, Florida. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm a writer at Slate and the author of the book, How to Be a Family. I'm the dad of Lyra, who's 15, and Harper, who's 13. And we live in Arlington, Virginia. On today's show, we have some advice for our mother whose teen has taken to a more provocative style of dress, which is fine in most situations, but her mom is worried that she isn't appropriately adjusting when her provocative style of dress isn't appropriate. Then we'll be taking on a wild question involving a mother-in-law who is fixated on the color of her second grandchild's skin. On Slate Plus, Is your fridge covered in stick figure drawings and abstract paintings? Well, you'll want to tune in because we are going to be talking about whether or not it's okay to pitch your kids' adorable art projects. The perpetual parenting conundrum for anyone with a child under 10 years old, of course. But before we get there, we're going to start off as usual with triumphs and fails. So let's go with you, Elizabeth. What do you have this week? A triumph or a fail? I have an epic fail in the way of like, I don't understand how the world wants me to do this thing with three children. So I had to take all three kids to the doctor this week during COVID. (laughs) It's a nightmare. Like there's something about the doctor that also makes children like bananas. So, so one, like there's nothing to do in any of these rooms because anything that was there has been removed for COVID. There's a little library on the way in. So I like grabbed a book thinking like, well, just in case we have to wait. I normally have a few things in my purse, but I thought, okay, I could do this read aloud. And when I opened the library, I saw the sideways stories from Wayside School. I was like, oh, I remember this from my youth. I'll pick that up. Uh, That turns out to be just like riddled with stereotypes and all kinds of terrible behavior. I just remember (laughs) it as like being funny. So I'm like in this waiting room and I'm like sitting on the table and I'm trying to like read this, um, but I'm trying to also- Selectively edit because there's like a whole chapter about pulling pigtails and it's it's so and they're like but they're just there you know daring me to pull them and I'm like and one should never pull pigtails (laughs) you know like this is somebody else's body like it was so crazy and the kids are like what is wrong with this book um so they're like running around it was just a complete mess and then in an attempt to help me, they sent in two nurses, but all that did was give me two people that needed to talk to me. And of course, none of the children will go with the nurse by themselves. They all need me to supervise every, you know, step of the way. It was crazy. The um, shit, though, really hit the fan when the nurse tried to spell out vaccination to, (laughs) you know, not realizing that Henry is like, has zero filter and is like, she's spelling out vaccination and then everyone's screaming. And it was like, we needed blood draws. I had to like hold Teddy to the ground <laughs> while they're giving him these vaccinations. And the other two kids are like, why is mom pinning this child to the ground? Oliver really enjoyed taking the eye exam and just continued to do that at any opportunity. He would just go stand on the yellow square and read the letter, regardless of what was else was happening in the room. Well, that's like, fine. He's He's occupied. Yeah, he's uh, great. Yes, it's just so loud. It's like he wanted to be acknowledged that he's taking this test. Teddy refused to take the eye exam and just said random things. His had shapes and he just said other things. So who knows if he can see or not. I need all this paperwork filled out to move because, of course, when you arrive somewhere, like you need your kids' current vaccinations. You need those school forms filled out to go to anything, camps, any of that. So had to get all that done. It's done. It was terrible. 
we had had so many telehealth appointments and just been able to do telehealth or because Jeff was working from home, just like take one, run one up to do whatever we needed to do. And of course, we also needed to get these stitches out, which couldn't be done during this appointment. So I'll be going back, hopefully just with Oliver to have those removed. But um, I survived. It was terrible. I don't see a scenario in which I could have done better. It was just a fail. It was just a failure. We I mean, survived. You could have- you could have converted to Christian science and just yeah, never taken your kids to doctors at just all. Just not have anyone checked out. Yeah. Well, I would say I don't see there being a scenario in which you take three boys under 10 to the doctor and there is not chaos. So I don't think you failed so much as you simply existed. <laughs> Nevertheless, you persisted. I pr- exactly. And theoretically, yeah. we all got checked out. You know, the doctor saw right. enough of them. <laughs> the great news is now you accidentally got a dip tat. Exactly. Exactly. You <laughs> You're all good. What about you, Dan? Uh, I also have a fail. Okay. It's another um, very simple Harper fail. I'm really disappointing this kid a lot these days. Just through pure, pure inattention. Uh, this past weekend, we made plans to meet some friends at Eastern Market downtown and just walk around Capitol Hill a little bit. Um, but Harper couldn't go. She was very disappointed. She couldn't go, but she had softball practice at two. And so we tried to work it out, but she was like, okay, I understand. I'll stay home. It's my first Sunday softball practice. I don't want to miss it. But of course she wanted to know, well, how do I get to practice if you guys aren't there, if you guys are going to be downtown? And I said, the e-bike, we have the e-bike. We have a new e-bike. You know how to ride it. You know that it's enjoyable to ride. Practice is about a mile and a half away, but it's not bad at all. And the e-bike, no problem. She was a little bit nervous about it. Like, would her softball bag fit in the basket? So we checked and it did. Would she be able to put the battery in the e-bike? And we practiced and she could. And would she be able to find her way there? And I told her, uh, you know, practices at Taco Elementary. It's super easy. I showed her the map. We went through the route. She finally said, okay. So we all head downtown leaving Harper at home. And, you know, I'm expecting that in the half hour before practice, I will get a couple of phone calls with questions. And right on cue at 1.40, the phone rings, she calls. And, you know, I, I can't get the key to turn in the lock of the e-bike. And I, like, I don't really have a great response. It's just like, well, just continue turning it, but better. <laughs> and finally she goes, oh, I got it. It worked. And then there's, then I hear her go, oh, and there's a loud crashing sound. And then she hangs up and I'm like, I just don't, I do not wish to know what happened there. But then I don't hear from her for a while. I'm like, great. She probably made it. And then at about two o'clock, uh, she calls again and she goes, well, the ride was fine. I got here, but do you know what field I'm on? Cause there's a million teams here and I don't see mine. And I suddenly think to myself, huh? And I check my email and I say, Harper, Great news. You get to ride the e-bike some more because it turned out that Sunday practice is not at Tuckahoe at all. Sunday practice is at Yorktown, a mere 1.7 miles away from Tuckahoe. I just hadn't looked like I I had one job once again. That job was just to know where practice was, but I didn't do that. I blew it. I once again blew the job. So, you know, it's 2.02. Heart practice has already started. And I'm now telling my kid, Please ride the e-bike 1.7 more miles to a completely different place when you were already unsure about directions in the first place. (laughs) Good luck. So anyway, Harper was like, oh, dad. And I apologized profusely. And I I bought her a pair of extremely overpriced craft earrings at Eastern Market to try and (laughs) make it up to her. Nice. And I guess she has forgiven me because she wore the earrings and only a few times referenced the reason that she got them. I think so that she, is a made, she made it though. It's a try. She didn't make yeah. it to practice yeah, okay. as far as I know. Yeah. <laughs> she went somewhere. She went somewhere and she was home when we got home. Maybe now she'll take more ownership over the whole <laughs> right. softball over knowing scenario. where practice is. Yeah. The problem is the whole apparatus of kids' sports is built around only communicating with the parents. Right. Like the kids don't sign up to those websites, they don't have their email addresses. They don't, they don't get that information. So she's very dependent on me. And if I don't actually check the information, that's not, I'm not going to be able to give her the right answer. True. But you could just set it up so that, you know, that forwards to her. I could. From I your could. email. Maybe she'll <laughs> insist I, it's that I do. still your fail. Yeah, I mean, no, this is I, like I, a big, like she's I already anxious you. about all this and you said it like, 
I have anxiety about being in the right place at the right time, I would lose my, like, I would just, I'd be like in tears. Like, now I'm late and I don't know where I'm going. And this is not my fault. Harper didn't cry at all. And I asked her why. And she said, well, because this is the second time you did this to me. (laughs) And that reminded me that I did the same thing, like, not on the e-bike, but just making her walk to a softball thing, like, a couple months ago. Awesome. Well, you recouped with the earrings. I think yeah. those count as at least a partial triumph. So maybe we're, you're, you're neutral for this week, as is Elizabeth. Okay, so I have a tiny little baby fail that was wrapped up in um, a weekend of triumph. Naima turned eight. She's also on spring break this week, and her dad has to go out of town for some family stuff. So she's doing this week with her dad and next week with me. We don't usually do entire weeks uh, that way. But um, since we were, I was like, okay, great. We'll do a super special birthday weekend, just the two of us. And then we celebrated with her dad and um, brother and stepmom together as a family on her actual birthday. So for our little birthday weekend, we went to a drive-in. We saw um, a movie she was really excited to see. We just had lots of fun. So we're staying up late, girl talking and eating dinner. And we had some chicken nuggets. And so, you know, chicken nuggets come in pretty small portions, right? Like, you don't want to lose a nugget. Unlike (laughs) other foods, you can afford to, like, lose, you know, like, maybe if you, even with chicken wings, if you've got, like, four or five of them, like, those are pretty big things, right? If you've got, like, six nuggets and one is taken away, that is a percentage of your, you know, nugget intake that that might matter to you. And so... 18% of your nuggets just gone like that. Gone like that, right? And so I dropped the nugget. Or rather, she dropped a nugget on the floor and I picked it up and ate it quickly <laughs> because I figured that she could, instead of eating the floor nugget, because I was already prepared for her to be like, oh, I dropped it. Oh, world's over. And so I just ate that one so that she could then eat a nugget from my container. Right. Like you oh, can you're have sacrificing a- your yeah. life for hers. Right. I get it. Gave her the clean nugget. Mm-hmm. She's like, mommy, you ate my nugget. I said, no, I did that so because it hit the floor and you can eat one of mine. She was like, but that one was going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> She's not wrong. You ate the best nugget. <laughs> I ate the best nugget and that nugget was really good. Can I just make one quick recommendation yes. here? You know, McDonald's sells nuggets in like packs of 50. <laughs> they do. They do. You just want to go for it. Next time, we will take that into consideration. It it wasn't from McDonald's. Um, These were grilled nuggets. So they came in a smaller package. There were not very many of them. So we were savoring every nugget. But um, apparently, that wasn't good enough for Naima. And I understand because her mouth was set on that nugget. And she knew what it was going to deliver. And she didn't get to have it. I did. So that's my tiny little fail. In the midst, as you say, of an enormous set of successes. Happy Naima Day, everyone. I agree. Happy birthday. She'll never let you live it down. The only thing is that, yeah, six months from now, when people ask her what her birthday was like, that's what yeah, she said. I'd be like, my mom was. ate my food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My mom stole my nugget out of my hand, knocked it, <laughs> knocked to, the it to the floor, and then and picked it up. And on, ate my it. on my birthday. On my birthday. On my birthday. Well, if that's the memory that she has, at least she'll have a good story. So I'm okay with that, too. Okay, with that, we're going to move on and handle some business. In Slate Plus today, what is the best way to dispose of the things your kids make? Here's a little bit of what you'll hear if you have Slate Plus. Yes, throw it all away. Snap a photo, throw it. Same day. Say, when the kids go to bed, <laughs> my stuff hits the can. Seriously, keep the best art on the wall. Everything else is in the trash can. Absolutely. Throw it away. <laughs> we didn't even snap pictures. What a nice mom you are. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus today. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of show like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and you can support the work we do here on Mom and Dad Are Fighting. It's only a dollar for the first month. What a deal. Sign up at slate.com backslash mom and dad plus. Now, if you want to be notified about all things Slate Parenting, you need to sign up for Slate's Parenting Newsletter. Besides getting all of Slate's great parenting content in one place, including Mom and Dad are Fighting, Ask a Teacher, Care and Feeding, and so much more, it's also a really fun email from Dan in your inbox each week. So sign up at slate.com backslash parenting email. 
Finally, if you want to connect with other parents, join our parenting group on Facebook. It's super active and moderated. Just search for Slate Parenting on Facebook. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, let's get into our first listener question of the week, being read, as always, by the lovely Shasha Leonard. Dear Mom and Dad, my 14-year-old daughter has taken to dressing rather provocatively. She wears short shirts that reveal her belly almost daily, sometimes shows cleavage, and often wears jeans and shorts that I think are way too tight to be flattering or comfortable. I have been quite disciplined and said almost nothing, except a comment when it was like 20 degrees below zero and she left the house with a bare stomach because, really? I'm incredibly conflicted because I absolutely do not want to body shame her. I grew up in a house where body shaming was the norm and have struggled with an eating disorder for years. I still do. I am so thrilled she seems to have a healthy relationship with food and seems comfortable with her body. We are still doing 100% virtual school and she is not around boys because of quarantine, so I'm not worried about her being sexually active. However, I am concerned that she doesn't seem to understand the inappropriate nature of some of her choices. For example, she wanted to wear a skin-tight, ill-fitting, so-short-you-could-see-your-underwear dress for a virtual piano festival performance. The judges are all nerdy, mostly older, fuddy-duddies, and she knows this, so I'm completely puzzled by her choice. She is all around a good and seemingly happy kid good at school, nice manners, has a seemingly nice group of friends. What should I do? Can I or should I say something? And if so, how can I keep it body positive? Thanks in advance. Mom seeking modesty. Maybe. Okay, Dan. So Elizabeth and I are retired girls and I'm the mother to a future teen girl, but you are the father of current teen girls. And so for that reason and that reason only, I'd like to hear from you first on this. Uh, I, I remain unqualified in terms of actual life experience because my kids are, for whatever reason, they just clothing is not where they have chosen to express their uh, individuality in ways that that are like traditionally provocative or worrisome in a school setting. They definitely have their own style, but you know, neither of them dresses in, you know, in tight clothes or quote unquote provocatively. So that hasn't been an issue in our house. And I'm definitely very eager to hear what you guys have to say about this. But my initial take on reading this letter is that it certainly seems to me that right now there is no need to say anything. I mean, because you have a kid who, by your own declaration, is is happy and good and succeeding in school. As you know, they never see anyone, possible sexual partner or non-possible sexual partner, boy or girl. She's not going to school. There's no one to offend except for, I guess, some music judges. But who gives a shit? Right now, I don't know that you need to like start poking whatever hornet's nest this could possibly turn out to be before there's even any buzzing to poke at. When school is happening, when her life is more public, it's not out of bounds for you to have some family and house rules about what someone wears to school. But it seems to me that you are already sensing that it's more likely to be useful and healthy for her to have those conversations if those conversations focus on appropriateness for certain contexts, as opposed to whether the clothes are too tight or too sexy or too provocative or too whatever. But I also, in general, think that you probably should start preparing yourself now for the likelihood that there are definitely going to be times that she's going to leave the house in clothes that you just find absolutely absurd. And the more times you don't hassle her about it, the more peaceful your house is going to be. And in the long run, I think that 
this is the kind of problem that is, has rarely, if ever, been solved through mother-daughter haranguing. But I would like to hear what the daughters in the house have to say. I agree with the idea that like nothing needs to be done now. I a little bit feel like the letter writer is so worried about body shaming that she's unwilling or doesn't know how to start a conversation about, I mean, the things she talks about in the letter, like talking about appropriateness of dress for a situation and what message are you sending? I think that's a conversation that you need to start having. And maybe this is the time to have it because she doesn't have to change her dress or there's no consequences if she doesn't change her dress, right? And I'm not saying that this child needs to change how they dress at all. But I think it's important that we're having those conversations because the reality is for for as much as someone shouldn't be judged on what they wear, we live in a society where that's happening. We live in a society where we see men get away, you know, with all sorts of assault crimes and things and be told like, you know, look at how she dressed or women had this coming. There is kind of this brand of feminism now that is sort of like, this stuff is happening to women regardless how we dress. So I'm going to dress the way I want or I'm going to dress this way and take ownership of that. I think that's great. But I think that there needs to be conversations about that and about even if you decide you don't care, are you prepared to deal with catcalling? Are you prepared to deal with, I would say, you know, sort of less enlightened people, men who are not being taught at home that that is not a way to speak to women and that what you wear is um, has nothing to do with how you should be treated? We live in a society where a lot of that is happening. And I think this is a good opportunity to start talking about those things in a really safe environment because you're not asking her to make any change. It's really interesting, the notion that it's worth starting to talk about it now because you can talk about context extremely safely when the specific context right now is you're at home and you're not seeing anyone. And you then have something to contrast it to down the road when the daughter starts going out into other contexts and you then sort of have a baseline to to base those conversations on. If dressing to express herself is about taking control. That's also about taking control of understanding what kind of things could come at me as a result of the decisions I make, because I can't change their behavior for as much as I want to change the behavior of men and boys who say things because of the way that women dress. I can't do that. But what I can do is prepare myself for that coming and how I'm going to handle that. I don't I mean, Jamila, what do you think? As someone who dresses provocatively and has for many years, it is very rarely my intention to be provocative with my dress. I dress in a fashion that I like. I wear things that make me feel comfortable and attractive and pleased with myself and, and things that, you know, bring me pleasure aesthetically in terms of textures and colors. And that does at times tend to um, lead to some looks that are, that, that would be considered provocative by a good number of people, right? I'd say one, it requires, you know, I, I can't speak for somebody who's in a head to toe cat suit every day, but I would imagine that most people that dress in a provocative manner, whether it be what we consider to be sexually provocative or someone who's a goth or, you know, who's a member of a punk culture, right? Someone whose look is different in any way, you know, it, it could be the person who's wearing a hijab. When you stand out visually, because of particularly because of something that is identified as some sort of choice in presentation, you kind of have to have a thick skin, right? And so I, I think I agree with Elizabeth. It's important that you pre you are preparing your child for what sort of interactions she may have with the world based on her attire in a way that does not posit her body or even her aesthetic as a problem, but that you know, patriarchy is a problem, that we have this double standard, that young men and boys can run around shirtless, you know, or, or showing a whole lot of skin without it being provocative or sexually charged. Helping her understand that she's been born into something that's not fair, I think is important. That any judgment or shaming or discomfort she may experience 
is likely to be rooted in something that was designed to control her. And as Elizabeth, uh, as you said, if making these decisions about your clothing is about control and, and choosing what you truly desire, as opposed to, I want to be noticed, I want to be seen, I want to be, you know, I want people to be attracted to me, then part of maintaining that control is understanding that I can't control other people. I can control myself. And as long as I'm doing this for the right reasons, then this is okay. It is also incredibly important for somebody who likes to dress provocatively to understand what it means to be event appropriate. So there is a version of you that is on brand for any occasion, right? Whether it's the piano recital, if you're the girl who likes bodycon dresses, there's a long, dark colored bodycon dress, right? That's appropriate for a piano recital because it is not distracting from what you've come to do. It is allowing you to look and feel like yourself without getting in the way of anything that you want or deserve. And I think that's the biggest challenge. I think on some level being a black woman, I am aware that no matter what I wear, I am likely to encounter some negative engagement based on the way that I look. And I think on some level that has allowed me to kind of deal with the discomfort of being the provocatively dressed one from time to time, because I am never really that comfortable anyway. Right. It's like weirdly freeing that you have, you already know, whatever, you're going to take a bunch of shit. Yeah, like, you know, I'm going to be judged. I'm going to be scrutinized. So if you're going to do that, you're going to get the version of me that I like the best, right? And so helping her to understand that this is about what version of your style do you like the best that makes you feel good? But how do we interpret that in a way that doesn't cost you anything, right? You should not have to sacrifice your comfort in the piano recital because you, if to say you wore that for the virtual one, the next year you wear one for the in-person one, and then it's like, oh, I feel uncomfortable here, mm-hmm. right? Because maybe I feel comfortable wearing this dress to the mall. When I'm sitting in front of these nerdy adult dudes, I feel uncomfortable, right, in this moment. It's not that you're wearing something wrong. It's not that you've done something wrong. It's that this wasn't the place for the dress. Once she, it takes a long time, but once she masters event appropriateness, this becomes a much easier uh, conversation. And just one more thing for you, mom, this is something I'm struggling with too. I don't have an answer. I have a charge for you that I'm issuing also to myself. It's something I actually spent a lot of time thinking about last night um, when I was reading over the letters and kind of helped me face something that I need to deal with. As somebody who had an eating disorder or who has history of eating disorders, Parenting a child, particularly a girl child, I am fearful for what my relationship to my body might mean for her. And so I'm very careful to talk about all bodies and positive, affirmative, and, and, and you know, in, in ways that everybody is beautiful, regardless of how you choose to adorn it or show it or not display it. But if there is a handbook for raising a child after surviving your own eating disorder, I need to look it up and perhaps report back to you on that uh, for next week's show. But I think it requires a level of intervention that a lot of us are not seeking out, that we just kind of hope that we can somehow protect our children from feeling the way that we did. And it's great that it doesn't seem that your daughter is putting that on display at this point, You know that, that she doesn't seem to have the issues that you have. But I, I think that there's some checking in that those of us who are parents with eating disorders need to do not just with ourselves, but with a professional, with some resources about how to navigate that internal battle, because um, you could be creating something for yourself in your mind that's not there for her, that can be triggering or devastating for you and, and perhaps also devastating for her. But trying to care for a girl after being a girl with an eating disorder is terrifying. So I'm wishing you all the best on that. I will say, I know I've said a lot, but this is so, I'm like, oh, hi, my whole teenage years in the letter. Um, I know that for many years, my, the, what provocative dress was for me, particularly in college, I was known for being Jamila with the breasts, right? I cut all, every, I could not own a t-shirt if I did not cut it. Right. I cut every T-shirt. I remember I had this Malcolm X shirt and one of my homeboys saying something about like this Malcolm X, dude, like you got your titties <laughs> out with Malcolm X's face right there, you know, and it's just because I had to cut every shirt because if you didn't see my boobs and or my legs, 
what else do I have? Mm. That's what I felt was attractive about me. I did not feel like the rest of me was. And so I, I don't want to make you suspicious of her in ways that you're not, but I would also be mindful that there are, it is possible that there's something else going on beyond just what we want this to be, which is the beautiful loving affirmation of body and style and all that, that there could be a little bit more to it than that. I want to say, like, you don't have to go this alone. There are a lot of women that feel this way. Before I had children and I was younger and living on an Air Force base as a, you know, new spouse, another mom asked if I would go, you know, prom dress shopping with her older daughter and her as just like a, you know, another opinion. And I was because it felt more like a friend, I was able to say things like that your friends say when you're shopping, like, what do you love about? I see you love this dress. What do you love about it? Can I just go find you a couple more options that have this same thing? And I'm not going to make this choice for you. But I think as women, this is a way we can support each other and to invite your friends into this, even if it's online shopping or watching a TV show as a big group of moms and kids and, and talking about what kind of clothes are out there. I think there are avenues for that to help not take this all on yourself. Because Jamila, that's what I hear from you too right now is like, I I have to cradle not only my own insecurities, but like trying not to give those to my child who I, who I want so much better for. Um, but I also want them to be themselves. <laughs> you know, I, I think most, you know, most women kind of find their style by college, in college, though that age um, of figuring out how do I be event appropriate and also... Um, you know, feel like me and wear the stuff I like to wear, you know, the parts of body I like to show off, the parts of body I don't like to show off, like finding that. And some of that comes from having missteps and feeling uncomfortable in something you are. <laughs> I mean, it's it's unfortunate, but it does feel like for me that guided a lot of like how how I, you know, like, okay, I tried this and that didn't work for me. But I think overall, if your goal is to be Someone she can come to to talk about body stuff, which is the ultimate goal in this. Someone she can come to when, when you know, so she is in an uncomfortable situation. The only way you're going to do that is by opening up conversation and not trying to take control over what she, she wears. Well, thank you so much, letter writer. Uh, know that I am here with you. We wish you all the best. Uh, encouraging your not so little one and we certainly welcome updates uh, so please keep us posted on how this conversation goes as it is one that you are probably going to be having for at the very least the next four years if you have a parenting conundrum of your own that you'd like to share with us uh, for our consideration shoot us a note uh, mom and dad at slate.com now we're moving on to the second listener question, which is being read once again by Shasha Leonard. Dear mom and dad, my wife and I are a same-sex couple, and I am pregnant with our second child. It was important to me that my child be a part of my wife's family, so we decided to ask her brother to be our sperm donor, and he happily agreed. Since I have no living male siblings, when my wife had our first child, a trusted friend of ours donated. I am black and white, biracial and my wife, her family, our son's biological father, and therefore also our firstborn son, are white. My problem is with my mother-in-law. There is a lot of tension in our relationship. She has openly talked about how she wishes my wife would just be with the biological father of our first child, or less often, one of her female exes, particularly the white ones. It took a few years before my wife took it seriously when I said something was wrong, and that was a very painful and confusing time for me. More recently, though, I know that it's gotten to the point of her saying to her mother, if you make me choose between you two, you won't like what I choose. It would seem that I do not fit into my mother-in-law's vision of her daughter's life. She tries very hard to seem progressive. Her house is covered in rainbow flags. Compared to when my wife was pregnant with our firstborn, she shows barely any excitement for our second. Whenever she mentions the baby, it's always talking about their race. Most recently, she voiced what I think was supposed to look like excitement by saying to me, there's going to be another baby, and they're going to have nice black skin. I am a quarter black and fairly light skin, so this seemed like a bizarre statement to me. I politely said, well, mixed kids come out looking all kinds of ways, so you never know. But she doubled down. Nope, they're going to have nice black 
skin. My worry is that my mother-in-law's strange behavior will continue into when our kids are of the age where they can understand what's happening. She's crazy about our firstborn, but my fear is that my mother-in-law will treat our secondborn differently due to their race or their connection to me. I fear that they will be in the same position I was in for a long time, having a feeling that something is wrong, but having it written off. How should we deal with this as a family? How do I protect my kids from this? I want to hope once our second child is born, my mother-in-law will just treat them like a grandchild. But what do we do if she doesn't? Sincerely, that one drop. Okay. Um, Predictably, I have a lot of feelings about this, but let's start with you, Elizabeth. I think to sum all this up is that you and your partner have to put your immediate family first. You have created a new unit And the needs of this new unit have to come first. And you and your partner need to get on the same page about what expectations you have of your mother-in-law and what limits there are in terms of her ability to be appropriate. And I, when we talk about mothers-in-law, it's so hard because we, you know, it's like you don't want to take this relationship away from your partner. You don't want to take this relationship away from your child. But there is no situation in which... If your mother-in-law is treating you or treating your now new child differently, that this is good for anybody. I think the big thing is to you and your partner communicate, get on the same page. Does this mean that like we need to limit our interactions with this mother-in-law to to these particular things where it's just enough to kind of fill our bucket that she's, you know, getting to meet kids. You need to be checking in about that. How did that go? How do both people feel? Because I think, you know, the way you feel about an interaction with your mother-in-law and the way your partner feels about the interaction with her mother might be very different. So there needs to be a system where you you are checking in and you guys are on the same page. Um, because it sounds like even in the past, the letter writer is, you know, not surprisingly shouldering so much more of this burden the partner because it's her family has to be the one that is sticking that is sticking up and putting these limits out first and that's going to start by having this conversation at home about what you feel comfortable with with your mother-in-law there's always this hope that this like baby comes and just nothing matters like here's this beautiful baby and now we're this family um but it sounds like that that may not happen so how are you going to deal with that as a family and and you should not feel bad at all for saying this is my family unit, this part, you know, my partner and my two children and me, and we take care of ourselves and our emotional well-being first. And if that means that we can't see this person or we only can see this person, um, you know, very short video chats, like whatever that is to maintain your mental health as you bring this new baby into the family, that's what you need to do. I think that every thing that this letter writer writes confirms her long-held belief that her mother-in-law has some very serious problems, a belief that it took her a long time to get her wife to understand. Um, And that, she says, was just a tremendously difficult time. What I don't think we know yet, despite all the evidence that we have here, is is whether the mother-in-law is going to have problems with this baby. All my most racist relatives, almost all of them have eventually been presented with mixed race grandchildren. And every single one of them has basically the existence of an actual honest to God, living, breathing baby causes them to instantly fall in love the way that grandparents do and issues don't present with those babies. But in every case that, that has never made whatever issues there are with their child's partner go away. People are complicated and contain multitudes as we all know. And so I think this whole situation is complicated by the fact that I think it's quite likely that the eventual result is going to be a loving grandmother who treats this baby exactly the same as she treats the other baby who's wonderful to them both, but who is, who still treats you badly. And that is, I think an even more difficult and problematic situation that, as Elizabeth says, will require 
very careful and concerted gatekeeping and a unified front between you and your partner and your partner shouldering the burden so that it's not constantly on you to do so. I have to admit, I really do struggle with when black identified people partner into families where racism is so present. I, 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 there's just something in my brain that does not compute that, that wonders why not get off this train when you could have, right? <laughs> why not find someone whose family does not feel this way about who I was born to be? I understand that love and partnership is not that simple. I also understand that you're a mixed race yourself, but as somebody who's a child of a mixed race parent who has a entire half of my family that I'm disconnected from due in great part to what happens when everyone's not on board with this sort of thing. And it's not it's not that it should be a controversial or, or uh, provocative thing to, to be in a mixed relationship. But when there are people that, particularly white people, that behave this way, I, I just, you are not a drop. You are a person. I, I would hope that you do not think of yourself as that one drop of blackness in one of your children's bloodlines. I have to, I just, I can't not say this. I am a bit perplexed by the decision to have one child with black heritage and the other child with not black heritage. And even though you yourself only have, I'm assuming one black grandparent, this child very well may be white passing that you've created these two very different experiences for your children, even within their family, that will come with some complication, particularly if there's a visual difference between the two of them. And even if there isn't, if there's an emotional connection to blackness and black identity that the child that you've carried has, that their sibling obviously would not have, you know, it's one thing to be a progressive white child, and it's another thing to be a progressive mixed race child. And these two very well may have a different walk in the world that depends entirely on how they come out looking. Even when there's that beautiful grandchild that softens the, the aged racist heart of grandma or grandpa, there is still a lot of pain and and confusion and trouble that can come to that child in those interactions with that grandparent. And this woman is not, she doesn't have your best interests in mind. And so it's hard for me to believe that she's ever going to be able to truly, truly embrace this child, knowing that the child has black blood in them because there's something about blackness that bothers her. If I were you, I think that you and your partner should talk to a professional. Not that we aren't professionals, of course, but we're I think not professionals. <laughs> <laughs> I think that this is something that is going to require uh, some some care and that there's going to be some healing that needs to happen for you and for your partner um, and between the two of you. Because this woman that you love has brought somebody into your life that represents the most devastating truth of black life, which is racism. And she has not just brought it into her interactions with you, but now this idea of this unborn child that she's convinced with one, you know, that the, with a white parent and a parent that is one fourth black is going to have black skin. It is so unlikely that this child would be at all recognizable as a partially black person. Not impossible. You know, maybe your one black grandparent was from Senegal, but it is unlikely that this is going to look like a mixed race child. This child is likely to look white, but that this idea is in this woman's head. It doesn't matter what the baby looks like. That's the black baby. And I think you all are going to need some help walking through this as a couple and as a family. Jamila, I love that suggestion because I think so much damage has already been done. Like even without the just just the things that have happened to our letter writer, like there's a lot of hurt that is not going to go away on its own. I, I think that's a really great suggestion. When you say that this woman is crazy about your firstborn, I just... I don't know that there's a scenario in which it's right for this person to be around both of these children, you know, with, without there being some sort of 
reconciliation around who she has been in this relationship to you and what she, the things that she has said and done that have made you feel uncomfortable and unwelcome and that she at one point wanted your wife to be with the father, the firstborn child, that this is deeper than wanting her child to be straight. She, you know what I mean? Like that was a white man and that was the vision of family that she had for her child for a long time. You represent something drastically different. And I don't know what your wife has or has not done to try and help mitigate that, but it does not sound like it's been enough, that it took years for her to see it, that you were subjected to this for years. I don't know what your own experience has been in your fam- in your own mixed race family or, or what your parents' experiences were or how you were treated, but no one should make you feel the way that this woman has. And, and even when you, it's a cheeky sign off, I get it, when I'm that one drop, but just, you're not a stain. There's nothing wrong with you. And I, you know this, intellectually, I'm sure you know this, but, you've been made to feel like you represent something wrong in this family. And um, uh, you're, you all are going to have to deal with that before anything, before anything. And it's important that you all deal with it now so that it is not transferred onto your second child. And so that these two children can have as healthy and equitable a relationship with one another as a child who identifies as white and a child who who knows, you know, may identify as mixed race or partially black, can have. So that was Heavy Letter Writer. Uh, We are wishing you all the best uh, for a happy and safe delivery and some peace and healing within your family. If you have a parenting concern that you'd like for us to uh, sort out for you or to tell you that we can't sort it out and that you need to hire someone to do it, please send us a letter, uh, mom and dad at slate.com, or you can post it to the Slate, excuse me, or you can post it to the Slate's Parenting Facebook group. Just search for Slate's Parenting. Sometimes you just need someone to say, yeah, that's fucked up. You (laughs) better talk to someone real about that. That's true. And we are happy to to do that. So that's fucked up and you need to talk to somebody real. Before we get out of here, we've got some recommendations. Let's start with you, Dan. What do you have for us this week? Uh, I'm recommending a book, uh, not a book for kids, unless you have uh, weird, boring kids. But as a weird, boring adult, I love this book. It's called Water, Wood, and Wild Things by a woman named Hannah Kirshner. Um, It's uh, an American woman's years in a small Japanese mountain town. This woman, Hannah Kirshner, has spent years just uh, going back and forth between Brooklyn and this little tiny Nowheresville town in uh, remote mountainous Japan that is sort of a a center for traditional Japanese arts and crafts. And she uh, has just basically been an intern everywhere, learning how to make sake, how to wood carve, how to hunt ducks, uh, how to farm for rice, how to make paper. Uh, it's just a totally fascinating book. She's quite a beautiful writer. She's very uh, thoughtful and uh, clearly loves this community and the community clearly loves her back. And the best thing about the book in times like this, it just made me feel like I was somewhere far away for a little while thinking about things that are so far away from my life that I never even thought about them before. I really liked it a lot. It's called Water, Wood, and Wild Things by Hannah Kirshner. That sounds great. More crafts. I need to read all mm-hmm. about reading about crafts in a in a foreign land. <laughs> You're definitely going to want to buy a traditional Japanese foot pedal operated lathe when this is done. <laughs> Sign me up. You had me at lathe. Um, well, I'm I am recommending a children's book called Grasshopper by Tatiana Yukova, and it is a wordless picture book. So it's for your little ones. And if you have not done wordless picture books with your pre-readers, I really recommend it. It's a wonderful way to get them to tell the story, but you're like looking at a real book, and they get to tell you their own version of the story, like they're reading the book. This one is just full of beautiful art of a um, little girl exploring her backyard. My boys love it. Even Henry, the eight-year-old, loves to like tell me his version of what might be happening. And she discovers all these critters and all kinds of fun stuff. And the art is really beautiful. So again, it's called Grasshopper. I am recommending Mean Girls, the film. You may have heard of it. 
very popular. Stars Lindsay Lohan and Tina Fey, who wrote it. Mean Girls was released in 2004 when I was in, I was halfway through college. So it just was not, it was just a little bit too, just a little bit too young for me. Um, so I, I, I didn't see it. I, I took Naima to see it at a drive-in this weekend. One, there were pop culture references I knew from the film that I knew were from the film. You can't sit with us on Wednesdays. We wear pink. I didn't realize how many memes and gifts and things had come from this film. It's a very you're smart watching that movie like my kids watch every movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a it's, meme. That's a meme. <laughs> it's a very funny movie. Um, it is PG thirteen. So if you have a mature eight-year-old or a kid that you show things that are not appropriate for their age, then they can handle it. Uh, if you have a traditional eight-year-old, it may be a little bit much for them, but it is a really, at, at the core of it, uh, and it's silly and offensive in places, but there is this really great uh, message about teenage girls and friendship. And it also gave me a lot to think about, about how adults approach teenage girls and their, you know, supposed hysteria and, you know, the, the, the ways that they interact with each other and just the misogyny that's so very present in how we, you know, think of teenage girls as these kind of shrieking wild hormonal banshees as opposed to very young people that are dealing with complicated emotions and uh, a childlike ability to grapple with them in an adult-like body. That's a great point about the movie having as much to offer parents and how they deal with teen girls. Like the, the I'm a cool mom scene <laughs> is such a touchstone. I think now for so Oof. many parents of being like, Oh God, well, Triggering. I need to remember not to do that. Definitely a good gut check for anybody who's worried about what kind of yeah. cool mom uh, they, they may be. So yes, mean girls, if you've never heard of it, look it up. Very good. More and more people are finding out about mean girls each day. With that, thank you for listening. (laughs) Thank you for listening to another episode of Mom and Dad are Fighting. Uh, One more reminder, if you would like to have us weigh in on your parenting quandaries, send us an email to slate.com or post it to the Slate's Parenting Facebook group. Just search Slate's Parenting. And if you haven't already, subscribe please wherever you listen to podcasts we're there it helps us out and it makes sure that you never miss an episode and while you're there go on ahead and just leave us a review rate the show let everyone know how much you love mom and dad are fighting thank you thank you thank you with that mom and dad are fighting is produced by rosemary belson for elizabeth newcamp and dan kwok i am jamila lemieux Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.